This morning we're going to consider Haman's fall and Mordecai's rise. We're looking at Esther chapter 6. In our last visit to the book of Esther, we saw that after attending the first of two banquets that Queen Esther had prepared for King Ahasuerus and himself, Prime Minister Haman went off as though he had reached the highest possible level of achievement, even greater than rising above all the other princes in the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the ultimate accolade for him to have been the only one to accompany the king to a banquet prepared by the queen. Little did Haman know that the one who had invited him to the banquet would be instrumental in his downfall and his demise. We also saw that even though Haman departed from the first banquet as pleased as punch and as proud as can be, he was nevertheless infuriated because Mordecai the Jew, who was at the king's gate, refused to stand up and move for him. It had been Mordecai's refusal to pay homage to Haman on a previous occasion that had inflamed his rage, so much so that he secured from the king an irreversible decree to kill and to destroy in a year's time, not just uh, Mordecai, but all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the empire. Goes to show, rage can be a terrible thing, can't it? Certainly was with Haman. Coming back to Haman, leaving the banquet with his heart puffed up with pride and also filled with rage, he went home where he boasted to his wife Zeresh and to his friends about all his achievements, whilst at the same time he whined like a big sport child and said, Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman's wife and his friends counselled him to have gallows built and for Mordecai to be hanged upon the gallows and that thing pleased him. That brings us to chapter 6 where we shall see a turn of events that point to the overruling providence of God and that marks the beginning of the end for the wicked Haman. Let's have a look again at verses 1 through to 3. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Tiresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honour and dignity have been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. The night spoken of, in verse 1, followed the first banquet. The second banquet, banquet which was scheduled for the next day, had not yet taken place. 
Considering that the first banquet was a banquet of wine, one might have expected the king to sleep like a baby that night, but he was not able to do so. There would have been various things that the king could have done to while away the night hours. He could have called in his musicians. He could have called in one of his harem, I suppose. Instead, he gave commandment for the chronicles of the kingdom to be read to him. Perhaps he thought that that would send him to sleep. Of all the records that he could, that could have been selected from the chronicles, the one that was chosen, or put it another way perhaps, the page that the book providentially fell open at, was none other than the time that Mordecai had foiled a plot by two gatekeepers to assassinate the king. Let's remind ourselves of that. Let's look back at chapter 2, um, verses 21 through to 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Tiresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Where it is written in those days, in verse 21 of chapter 2, that was in the seventh year of the king's reign, according to chapter 2 and verse 16. And then when you consider that according to chapter 3 and verse 7, it was the king's twelfth year that Haman's wise men cast lots to find the best time to destroy the Jews. That means that the record that was being read to the king that night when he was unable to sleep was at least five years old. I don't imagine for one moment that Esther nor anyone else other than God himself, would have known the significance of her naming her adoptive father Mordecai as the hero of the hours, hero of the hour all those years ago, when according to chapter 2, verse 22, she certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. She made a point of giving Mordecai's name, and that was entered into the Chronicles all those five years or so ago. You'd have thought the king Ahasuerus would have rewarded and honoured Mordecai the Jew at the time that the assassination plot was foiled. But that time clearly was not God's time. And now, over five years later, the king, who was unable to sleep, was being reminded that he owed his very life to Mordecai the Jew. And now it was God's time for the king whose heart was in the hand of the Lord to honour Mordecai. We'll have a look at verses 4 through to 10. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house 
to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honour more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honour, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal, whom the king delighteth to honour, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew, that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. We've already seen on a previous occasion that King Ahasuerus was putty in Haman's hands. For example, you might recall that Haman was so confident about getting his own way with the king that instead of first obtaining permission or, or obtaining a decree from the king to kill all the Jews in the 127 provinces, and then afterwards assembling his wise men and his servants to cast lots in order to ascertain when the best possible time would be to massacre the Jews. He did things the other way round. He called his servants first. They drew, they drew lots in order to establish when would be the best time to kill all the Jews. And then he went to the king the other way round. Such was his confidence that he would get his own way with the king. And now we see Haman going to the king at the crack of dawn to secure permission to hang Mordecai, having already taken the liberty of having the gallows erected, presumably imagining that Mordecai's execution was a fate accompli, and not imagining for one moment that due to a turn of events, the king had now set his heart on honouring Mordecai. Can you see God's perfect timing and don't you just love it? The hymn writer William Cowper rightly said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, He treasures treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. The king said to Haman, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour? The king's blue-eyed boy straight away thought that the king was talking about him. And so he recommended that the one whom the king delighteth to honour ought to be paraded through the streets 
seated on the king's horse, no less, and clothed in royal regalia, and even with a crown, the king's crown, upon his head. Apparently, it was not permitted for anyone other than the king to wear the royal robes, and sitting on the king's horse was tantamount to sitting upon his throne. As such, Haman's confidence before the king knew no end. It would seem that only Haman would have had the audacity to ask the king of the mighty Persian Empire to exalt him as king. But actually, what he was doing is an all too familiar trait of sinful men, boys, women and girls who have never prostrated themselves before the throne of God's grace and have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin. They elevate themselves and want to be elevated as kings and as gods. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there is a description of charity or love. And in verse 4, it is written that charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. That is, love does not brag, neither is it proud. The two go together, don't they? When a person blows his own trumpet, he is full of pride and full of arrogance. Although it may offend you to hear this, that is an apt description of you. If you are some, if you somehow imagine that you are able to present yourself before a holy and righteous God and meet with God's approval, having never acknowledged that you are nothing more than a hell-deserving sinner and having never trusted in Jesus as your saviour, the one who fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf and had your iniquities laid upon himself at Calvary's cross. If that is you, then you are someone who vaunts yourself. You are someone who is puffed up and you need to repent and believe the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. You are to plead nothing other than the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your acceptance before a holy and righteous God. As the hymn writer said, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's how we should all be before God. Not puffed up, vaunting ourselves, full of pride and arrogance. We won't see Haman humbling himself before the throne of God's grace in this book. But what we will eventually see is his public humiliation when instead of him strutting along on the king's horse with a crown upon his big proud head, he will end up hanging from the gallows that he had built for Mordecai the Jew. Looking at verse 10, the king who had only just heard about or been reminded about Mordecai's heroics over five uh, five years earlier, 
said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. How convenient that the Chronicles gave details of Mordecai's Jewish identity that uh, thus ingratiating the Jews with the king and preparing the way for Esther to plead for the Jews to the king. Can you see how God thought about the detail five years earlier, even before Haman ever thought to destroy the Jewish race, including Mordecai? Looking at verse 11. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour. Haman, who was second only to the king himself in the mighty Persian Empire, had already erected gallows to hang Mordecai the Jew, who had steadfastly refused to honour Haman. He had refused to pay homage to him. And now we see Haman doing what Mordecai had refused to do, and a lot more besides. Mordecai had simply refused to bow and reverence Haman, and he had refused to stand up for him and move for him. But none of those things even begin to compare with Haman having to lead Mordecai through the streets of Shushan, saying, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour. Haman's comeuppance and his humiliation was in full swing, courtesy of God, for whom all things are possible. As Jesus said concerning the impossibility of anyone entering the kingdom of God, apart from God's grace, Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I trust that you can see that what was happening in verse 11 would never have been possible and it would never have happened had it not been orchestrated by God who is sovereign over the affairs of men. Indeed, he is sovereign over everything. And I, for one, am so glad about that. Looking at verses 12 through to 14. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him but shall surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. In verse 12, a contrast can be seen where an ungodly person cannot bear, he cannot bear it when he is not honoured by his fellow men. Whereas any honour that is given to the godly does not change them. As Matthew Henry pointed out, 
Mordecai was not puffed up with his honours. He returned to his place and the duty of it. Honour is well bestowed on those that do not think think themselves above their business. But Haman could not bear it. What harm had it done him? But that will break a proud man's heart, a proud man's heart which will not break a humble man's sleep. Quite literally, anyone who belongs to Jesus, and that includes the most miserable of slum-dwelling beggars who lives in abject poverty and without any honour whatsoever amongst men, is infinitely better placed than the richest and most powerful people in the world who live in palaces, but who are nevertheless without Christ. Though the natural eye cannot see it, the believing beggar is a royal priest. He is a servant of the Most High God. He has treasures in heaven, with the greatest treasure of all being the Lord Jesus Christ, who is altogether lovely. Unlike an ungodly prince, the believing beggar has been brought up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay by Almighty God, and his feet have been set upon the rock whose name is Jesus. In the book of Daniel, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, who had everything this world could offer, did not humble his heart, but lifted up himself against the Lord of heaven, and then one day at a feast, writing appeared on the wall, telling the king that God have numbered his kingdom and finished it. That same night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And then there's a farmer in Luke chapter 12 who had a bumper harvest, so much so that he built new barns, and he said to his soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Likewise, the writing was on the wall for Haman and very soon his soul would be required of him. After the humiliation of having to lead his enemy, Mordecai the Jew, through the streets of Shushan, Haman hastened to his house, mourning and having his head covered. By now, even though there is no reason to imagine that his wife and his wise men had any knowledge of the one true God, they could nevertheless see something of the providence of the only true God working favourably towards the Jews. And they could also see the inevitability of Haman's own fall and his final destruction. Finally, instead of being so keen to be honoured by <clears throat> honoured by men, and instead of being so resentful of Mordecai being honoured by the king, Haman would have done well to read and take heed of Psalm 2, verses 10 through to 12, where it is written, Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. That's Haman, isn't it? Judge of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, 
when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Furthermore, Haman is a picture of all who have not kissed the sun. If that is you, then you need to kiss the sun. Repent, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from all your sin, including your pride and your bragging. Far better to boast about Jesus, for he alone is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Amen.